your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, hydrogen, oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and nicolaodymium, neptunium, germanium, superlutanium, uranium, europium, zirconium, zirconium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and acetine, and radium, and gold, protectinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. There's imprium, and perbium, actinium, and rubidium, and water, and gallium. All right, welcome aboard. Way back in the 1940s. different formulas to protect the Atlas rocket from corrosion. Okay, so that was back in the 1950s. 39 different formulas were tried by the rocket chemical company to protect the Atlas rocket from corrosion. Finally, they found success on the 40th try. This gave rise to a commercial product. What is that commercial product? Then I've got another question for you. President Benjamin Harrison and his wife refused to touch the items installed in every room of the White House in 1891. What were these items? If you know the answer to either of those questions, you give us a call at 514-790-0800, or you can text your questions and comments to 514-800. Now that people are beginning to travel, uh, hoping that... uh, the COVID-19 scourge is kind of subsiding, I have a warning for you. If any of you are planning a trip to Papua New Guinea, you have to be very careful, especially if you are a male. And that's because fish are attracted to smell of urine. And it's very helpful to be aware of this fact if you're swimming in the Sepik River in Papua New Guinea, because the river is inhabited by the Paku fish which like piranha have razor sharp teeth. And two fishermen found out about this the hard way. They were attacked by the fish after relieving themselves while swimming in the river. The fish zeroed in on the urine stream stream and went straight to the source and uh, exercised their biting abilities, part of the anatomy where you don't want any such experience. Such carnivorous fish are not native to Papua New Guinea, and nobody knows how the fish uh, got into the river. So anyway, a little bit of warning for those of you who are planning to travel to New Guinea and swim in the Sepik River. This week uh, marks the beginning of the baseball season, and uh, I want to tell you a little story uh, about that. It's a sad story, of course, because it involves uh, Lou Gehrig. Fans, for the past two weeks, you have been reading about the bad break I got. Yet today, I consider myself to be the luckiest man on the face of the earth. Any sports fan will recognize those lines. They were spoken by Lou Gehrig on July 4th, 1939, when the New York Yankees held a special day for him to mark his forced retirement from baseball. The bad break that Gehring referred to was amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, ALS, a terrible progressive motor neuron disease that usually leads to death within a few years of diagnosis. Chances are that while Lou Gehrig certainly knew a lot about bats, he didn't dream that one day they may yield a clue about the devastating disease that has come to bear his name. But we're not talking about the kind of bats that Gehrig was familiar with. 
We're talking about the fruit-eating bats found on the island of Guam. Starting in the early 1900s, the Chamorro, a native people on the island of Guam, began to show a frightening incidence of a neurological disease that slowly robbed people of the use of their muscles and eventually killed them. By about 1940, it had become the leading cause of death among adult Chamorros. A sudden and dramatic rise in the incidence of a disease is often caused by some sort of environmental factor, perhaps some toxin in the food supply. One of the main features of the Chamorro diet is flour made from the nuts of the cycad tree. It's used extensively to make tortillas. When researchers isolated a compound called beta-methylamino-L-alanine from cycad nuts and found that it was a neurotoxin, they thought they had found the answer to the mystery. But there was a troublesome question. Why did the disease escalate only around 1904? Cycads had always been a part of the Chamorro diet. A further complication turned up when they found that the toxin was destroyed when the nuts were ground into flour. So if the cycad toxin was indeed the culprit, it was getting into the Chamorro's body by some other route. Oliver Sacks, the famed neurologist and writer, provided an idea. He had discovered that the Chamorros had a particular penchant for fruit-eating bats, which they would boil in coconut milk and devour completely. Catching the bats, though, was quite a challenge, so they were only served on special occasions, at least until the Americans acquired Guam after the Spanish-American War. Then guns became more readily available and bats appeared more frequently on dinner tables. And the crux of the matter is that the favorite food of the fruit-eating bat is the cycad nut. So the theory is that as natives started to eat more bats, they were exposed to more of the toxin that the bats had concentrated in their bodies. But by the 1940s, the bats had been hunted almost to extinction and the disease rate dropped. Certainly an interesting theory, and one that merits further investigation, especially after researchers found that a bat can harbor as much beta-methylamino-L-alanine as contained in a ton of processed cycad flour. It's a safe bet that Luke Gehrig never dined on fruit-eating bats. But the evidence gathered in Guam suggests that there may be other toxins in our environment that may be responsible for Luke Gehrig's disease. Garrick himself passed away just two years after his famous luckiest man speech. So there is uh, a little sort of a footnote to the beginning of the uh, baseball season because, you know, the two names that are most often associated with baseball, at least by historians, of course, are Babe Ruth and, uh, and Lou Gehrig. Babe for his... Uh, uh, fantastic home run hitting abilities, and Lou Gehrig because of the number of consistent games or continuous games that uh, that he played. All right, so so much for uh, the fruit eating uh, bats. Uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, interesting uh, chemical demonstration that uh, I like to do. You know, um, I've had. Uh, I don't know how many former students, but uh, I think it's in the neighborhood of 40,000 over 45 years or something like that. So that that is a, a lot of students. And uh, many of them will tell you uh, that one of their favorite memories of <laughs> being in, in my course 
is when, <coughs> sorry, when the crazy professor ate chalk in the classroom. And yeah, I, I did do that. I still do that occasionally as a demonstration of um, neutralizing stomach acid with calcium carbonate. Calcium carbonate, of course, <clears throat> is the basic ingredient in many antacids, and for example, in, in Tums. And if you get too much acid in the stomach, <clears throat> that can lead to some of the acid going up uh, and you know causing a burning sensation. And you use an antacid. And calcium carbonate is one of those antacids. But calcium carbonate is uh, also the ingredient in uh, at least one type of blackboard chalk. The other type is calcium sulfate. And uh, I've often uh, amused students by uh, telling them that uh, uh, I'm going to uh, treat my excess stomach acid with chalk, and I bite into a piece of chalk. And of course, they think that this is uh, is very hilarious. But of course, uh, I then launch into an explanation of how calcium carbonate neutralizes uh, hydrochloric acid, and it really isn't dangerous at all. And the worst thing that might happen is that you burp a little bit, because when calcium carbonate uh, neutralizes um, uh, the hydrochloric acid, you generate carbon dioxide, which is going to come out one way or uh, another. Now, all of this is to uh, uh, introduce another demonstration that uh, I have done in class, and one that I want to talk about with you in a little bit of detail. And uh, telling students that you're going to fry an egg in the lecture room doesn't really trigger much excitement until you tell them that you're going to do it with water. Now, what I do then is, is take an aluminum pan, you know, one of the disposable aluminum pie pans, and um, I sprinkle some water into it. And then I put another empty aluminum pie pan on top, wait a couple of minutes, break an egg into the top pan, and very quickly, that egg, egg begins to fry. And uh, to the students, this looks like magic. In a way, it is. It's, it's really the magic of chemistry. And the trick is placing some calcium oxide or quicklime in the bottom pan. And we normally recognize water as an extremely important resource when it comes to cleaning, cooking, irrigation, and serving as a solvent for chemical reactions. But we don't generally think of it as a reagent in chemical reactions. But it certainly can be. And that's what I want to talk to you about. And that's why I'm talking about the uh, egg frying experiment. But you're going to have to wait a little bit because first we will check traffic. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. Life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Okay, I think we have Ari on the line who has an answer to one of my questions. Ari. Yeah, hi, how are you? So, yeah, I have the first question, I believe you were talking about corrosion and the 40th try. So for me, the first thing that came to mind is WD-40. Yeah, of course. I guess that was too easy a question. Do you know what the, the WD question, stands for? I, I didn't get the second Do you know what the WD stands for? Do you know what the WD stands for? I do not. <laughs> yeah, it stands for water dispersing, ah. because that was the whole point: is to prevent water from seeping into the into the rocket. And the cool. the guy who came up with this formula, Norm Larson, 
he sold the rights for the product for $10,000. Oh, my. To, to, today, the <laughs> WD-40 company is valued at $500 billion. Ouch. <laughs> so, so yeah, that, that was sort of an, an ouch. Okay, no, the second question uh, was about President Benjamin Harrison and uh, his wife and he himself refused to touch items installed in every room of the White House in 1891. What were those items? 1891, I can't think of anything. 1891, smallpox or something? No, that's too, too late. No, 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 no. All right, well, we'll leave that for, uh, for someone else. Well, okay. thank you very much, I'm a big fan of your show. Keep up good, the, thank keep you. Up, uh, in, uh, always enjoy hearing your show. Thank you. So right, we'll bye replace bye. that answered question with another one. And here we go. If the moon disappeared, what would happen to the length of days on Earth? I ask this because there's a new series on TV now. Uh, it's called Moonfall, which uh, has the thesis uh, you know, of the, the moon breaking apart. I started to watch it. I thought it was dreadful. But anyway, at least it did stimulate this question. So if the moon disappeared, what would happen to the length of days on Earth? Give us a call, 514-790-0800. You can also text to 514-800. And uh, there are a couple of texts. Uh, people have asked, um, what is sugar of lead? And why is it so called? Uh, if you um, take lead and you react it with vinegar, with acetic acid, you get lead acetate. And lead acetate tastes very sweet. So that came to be called sugar of lead. And uh, <clears throat> turned out the Romans actually discovered this, that when they stored um, their wine in lead containers, the wine became sweeter. And that is because wine is uh, acidic and it can react with lead and you get some lead acetate um, in there. Another question is whether or not there's any connection between the fruit lime and quicklime. No, there's no connection at all. That's just an accidental use of the uh, of the same uh, term. Um, someone else wants to know whether or not beetroot juice can lower blood pressure. Uh, some articles have been published on that, but none of them compelling. Uh, so if you have high blood pressure, I would not resort to treating it with beetroot juice, but there's nothing wrong with drinking uh, beetroot juice. Anyway, let me get back to my uh, quicklime story and the trick of frying an egg, which is uh, based on um, putting calcium oxide into the, the bottom container, mixing it with, with water. Well, uh, calcium oxide has an extreme thirst for water and reacts with it very quickly, hence the term quicklime, because it reacts quickly. And the product of the reaction is calcium hydroxide, which is called slaked lime. And we call it that because quicklime's thirst for water has been slaked. This is a very, very exothermic reaction. It produces enough heat to quickly fry an egg. So it is a very impressive thing when you, when you see it. It's also the technology that is used in self-heating cans of food or drink. And those cans have two chambers, with one housing whatever is to be heated and the other containing calcium oxide separated from water by a barrier. And then you push a button, usually on the bottom of the can, and uh, that breaks the barrier. It mixes the water with the calcium uh, oxide and uh, generates heat, and the contents of the can are, 
are heated. Uh, I, I've been trying to get uh, one of these cans now. Uh, they sell them in, in the US, but I can't find the um, distributor in, in Canada. They used to be, used to be able to get coffee, used to be able to get hot chocolate in, in these uh, instant cans. It's a good idea. I mean, you know, you're out in the cold somewhere and you want to have a hot beverage, uh, and you can uh, instantly have it. I don't know why uh, it's become so difficult to uh, find it in, in Canada. But anyway, the ability to generate heat is far from the main use of calcium oxide. Calcium oxide is critical for the production of cement. And when you combine cement with gravel and sand, you get concrete. And guess what? Concrete is the most widely used material in the world. Calcium oxide, where do you get it? Well, you get it from uh, limestone. Limestone, you can mine, it's calcium carbonate, and you heat that, you get calcium oxide. And then you take the calcium oxide and you fire it with clay, and that's how you make cement. Now, here's an issue. Heating the limestone releases carbon dioxide. That's a problem. And the high temperatures needed to react calcium oxide with clay require the burning of fossil fuels. So this means that the production of cement has a colossal carbon footprint. And it is estimated that, that something like 8% of all global carbon emissions that are caused by humans come from uh, uh, the making of cement. That is a, a staggering number. And of course, these days, everybody is talking about, you know, cutting down on, on uh, carbon dioxide, <coughs> <coughs> sorry, on, on carbon dioxide emissions. But uh, let's face it, I mean, life without cement is, is just unimaginable. So uh, um, all sorts of technologies are, are being experimented with in order to try to, to produce cement-like materials which do not release carbon dioxide. But so far, um, no one has come up with anything. The chemistry here is, is very complicated. And then the, the setting of cement involves a, a series of complex chemical reactions, and they are only partly understood. But the key is the reaction of quicklime with water, the same reaction that I talked about you know, with frying the egg, because that forms slake lime, which then will slowly absorb carbon dioxide from the air to form insoluble calcium carbonate, and that's the essence of cement. Well, although that process does remove some carbon from the air, it's of course not enough to compensate for the amount of carbon dioxide released in the, the making of, of cement. So now you know a little bit about the secret of frying an egg uh, using uh, nothing but water and uh, the secret ingredient, which of course happens to be quicklime. But you may be familiar with quicklime in another context uh, as well, uh, because calcium oxide historically was used in the theater, and that was before electricity. What was the purpose? Because if you heat up calcium oxide to a high temperature, it glows brilliantly, and you can focus that line through a lens, and uh, guess what you have? You have limelight. Of course, the question is, how were they able to heat the um, lime to such a high temperature? And that was a very tricky business. 
It was done by uh, chemically generating hydrogen gas. And when hydrogen burns, it produces a very hot flame. Well, obviously, there was uh, inherent danger of fires in the theaters. And uh, of course, it was well, very welcome when electricity was introduced and you could replace the limelight by regular electrical uh, spotlights. And then there's one final little connection I'll tell you about with, uh, with lime. Tom Sawyer, you remember his famous uh, uh, episode of whitewashing the fence? Well, that whitewash is really slaked lime. And uh, he was able to trick his friends into helping him by kind of, you know, pretending that this was really a fun activity. And uh, they were just smearing uh, quicklime onto the uh, fence. And when it reacted with carbon dioxide from the air, it formed calcium carbonate, which is a white material that protects the fence. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Do you look upon the universe with wonder in your eyes? Do you tingle with attention when you're taken by surprise? If a problem should perplex you, does it put you... All right, I think we've got some callers on the line, one with a potential answer to my question. Hi, you're on the air. Yes, hi. Hi. Uh, I thought uh, with the White House question, the president, they wouldn't be touching the telephones. No, uh, oh. there were no telephones in the White House at that oh. time. Oh, I thought yeah. because of the data, I'd be pretty close. All right. I'll keep listening. Yeah. All right. Thanks. And I think we've got someone else on the line as well. Yes, hi. Uh, Dr. Joe, I have a question. Um, I have a couple of bowls on the floor that I'd give my cats water in. I've noticed for quite some time that when I dump it out and I wipe it, there's like an orangey tinge on the bottom of it. Is that something that's harmful to them or to me? Because sometimes I drink that water. I without without seeing this I can't I can't uh, Right. I have been putting it I decided to put it through the Brita. So now I I'm just giving them drinking water from the Brita jug and there's none of this coloration on the bottom of the bowl. You can't see it unless you wipe it. What is the bowl made of? It's a it's a plastic. It's a thick plastic. I bought it at a um um you know, an animal service place store. Um, so you're telling me that if you put tap water in it, it's like put tap water in it, and uh, you know I change the water every day. And if I wipe yeah. the bowl out, there's like a bit of an orange tinge at the bottom. And, and when, when I started filtering it through the Brita and I put it in the bowl, I wipe it. There's nothing. So I'm, oh, I I'm, I assume the Brita is yeah, taking I, it out, but I just don't know what yeah, it is. Is I, it I'd harmful? Have to look at it. I mean, because sometimes if I'm, you know, running the water and it's nice and cold, yeah. I have a nice glass of it without running it through the Brita. If it's orange, the only thing I can think of is is that it's some rust residue, and that's that's possible. The Brita okay. would take out any any iron oxide in the water, but I mean that's you know just making uh, hopefully. Would that an be harmful? Guess. Because I'm no, in a multi-apartment building, so I assume everybody else has the same thing, potentially. No, if it's rust, is not harmful at all. Okay. You're just give, giving yourself a little bit of iron supplement. 
Okay. But, you know, I, mean, I just wanted I to know. <laughs> without seeing it firsthand, uh, right. you know, all I can do is make a guess. Okay. Let's take a thank guess. Very much. Okay, well, thank yeah. you very much. Interesting. Have okay. a good day. Bye. So I'm still looking for the uh, answer to what the Harrisons in the White House were worried about in 1891. And of course, the other question that I, I posed for you, if the moon disappeared, what would happen to the length of days on Earth? And I think that that is a very interesting answer to that, that question. Anyway, I want to tell you another little story. You know, when I first started in radio, which was scarily 42 years ago, when we wanted to record something, we would use magnetic tape. And uh, believe it or not, when we wanted to edit, we would have to physically cut the tape and then stick it together. And today, I mean, we're just so accustomed, you know, you're picking up your phone and pushing a button on it and then using it as a recording device. I mean, tremendous changes in this time. But uh, believe it or not, the first sound recording that was based on uh, mag magnetization was made in 1898. And that was by Danish inventor, Valdemar Poulsen. Now, of course, uh, Edison-type recordings on cylinders were around, but the, the idea to record on a magnetic tape, this was a totally novel thing. But Poulsen had some recent developments in physics to work with. The idea that passing a current through a wire wrapped around a piece of iron would convert the iron into electromagnet, which would then attract pieces of iron, was already established. So was the reverse notion, namely that moving a magnet through a coil of wire would induce a current to flow. So Poulsen wondered whether moving an electromagnet along a steel wire would magnetize the wire to smaller or greater extents as the current cruising through the electromagnet was varied. And then he set up his classic experiment. He stretched a steel wire at an angle such that a small electromagnet could slide down it at a steady rate. He attached a magnet to a battery and incorporated a microphone into the circuit. Basically, speaking into the microphone caused air movement, which moved the little magnet through a coil to induce a voltage that would modulate the voltage produced by the battery. If he were right, talking into the mic as the magnet slid down the wire would set up a pattern of magnetization in the wire that could be reconverted into sound. That would then be done by sliding an iron ring down the wire. He wound electrical wire around this ring and attached it to a speaker. As the ring slid down, whenever it passed the magnetized part of the steel wire, a current would be induced, which in turn would be translated to a motion in the speaker's membrane. Amazingly, it worked. Poulsen took out a patent on his discovery, a patent in which he described the potential for his invention. He clearly stated the possibility of coating a paper tape with iron dust and using this as a recording material instead of steel wire. By 1928, a German engineer, Fritz Flumer, had built a magnetic recorder based on this idea. And by the beginning of the Second World War, the Germans were broadcasting taped propaganda to Britain. 
The Allies were so impressed with the German technology that at the end of the war, they sent a scavenging team to pick up items of electronic interest from the retreating German army. Jack Mullen, a young technician, found some tape recorders and brought them back to the U.S., where he demonstrated them to a group that included an associate of Bing Crosby. Bing was getting tired of having to appear live on radio and making recordings on disc, which was laborious and complicated. In 1947, Crosby began to record his shows on tape, but the studio always had a musician ready to jump in with the recital should the tape break. However, the tape proved very durable, at least in that respect. Aging was a different problem because magnetization could be lost, particles could corrode, and the backing disintegrate. So if you recorded this little commentary on tape, it probably won't last longer than 100 years or so. <coughs> but I doubt that any of you are now recording on, on tape. And as far as the digital recordings go, we're not exactly sure how long they will last because nobody knows uh, how they will age. And, uh, you know, it may turn out that uh, all of the digital recordings that we're making today will at one time just become a relic of, of history. But it's very interesting, you know, to reflect on, on uh, uh, how quickly science has evolved in the area of, of, of recordings. I mean, uh, if you think back, uh, you know, it wasn't that long ago that we were buying these tapes and we were buying eight tracks. And then, of course, we were buying records. And uh, uh, today, uh, record shops are basically, you know, gone. And uh, everything is, is digital. Uh, tremendous uh, breakthroughs and, and how quickly all of this has, has happened and also how quickly we get used to all of this stuff. You know, we hold that smartphone in our hand without really thinking of what a miracle this is and everything that it does for us. That, you know, in just a second, you can reach someone on the other side of the world. You can have it play music. You can listen to a talking uh, book on it. You can record your verbal notes uh, on it. You can play videos on it. I mean, it, it's uh, uh, so far beyond what you know science fiction writers had even thought about. And uh, it's just amazing. But I, like I said, it's also amazing how quickly you get used to these things. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. We are both to science. A baby can do it and so can you. We are both to science. I've had uh, several people who actually have the correct or close to correct answer about what would happen if the moon disappeared to the length of days on Earth. Well, without the moon, a day on Earth would only last um, six to 12 hours, something like that. You could have more than a thousand days in a year. And why is that? Because the Earth's rotation would slow down over time, thanks to the gravitational force or pull of the moon. I mean, you know, the, the moon, of course, pulls on the Earth. There's a gravitational force there. And it slows down, I mean, microscopically, the spinning of the Earth. But if the 
moon totally disappeared, days would go by more quickly. Something else that could happen is that the tilt of the Earth's axis could also vary because that is also a function of the gravitational pull of the moon, and that could create some very strange weather. So, uh, you know, it, let's keep the moon. <laughs> it's, it's keeping us on an even keel, as it, as it were. And also, of course, nights would be very, very dark without the moon because the next brightest object in the night sky is Venus. <clears throat> And um, that is much, much more dim than the moon. So uh, I think for now we'll keep the moon. And uh, it looks like we're going to make a journey back to the moon as well. I mean, NASA has that that planned. And, um, of course, the plan is that it's going to be the first step uh, towards a journey uh, to Mars. I don't think that is going to happen in the next few years and probably not in my lifetime, but uh, it might happen in some of your uh, lifetimes. All right. So um, we had a correct answer to, to that one. Let me pose another question. Why does food cook faster in a pressure cooker? So why does food cook faster in a pressure cooker. If you know the answer to that, 514-790-800. You can, of course, also text to 514-800. Now, as I've, um, I think I've told you many times, I like uh, Broadway musicals. I, I would uh, really like to get back to going to Broadway and seeing some of this. Uh, maybe it's in the offing in the near future. And uh, I, I've seen a lot of Broadway musicals. I, I actually uh, have a count. I, I think at this point it's 163. And one of my favorites is Man of La Mancha. Uh, the mu music is, is great, uh, but there's also an interesting theme. Don Quixote, who sees himself as a knight errant, does not see the world for what it is, but prefers to imagine it the way he wishes it to be. For example, when he encounters a barber who has placed his barber's basin on his head to protect himself from the rain, he thinks he's wearing the enchanted golden helmet of the legendary Moorish king Mambrino that renders the wearer invulnerable. Well, I don't have a barber's basin, but I do have a copper bowl that serves similar purpose. And um, of course, it serves another purpose as well. It's great for beating eggs. When making pastry, like angel food cake, a requirement is that egg whites have to be beaten into hard foam before being blended with sugar, flour, and egg yolks. And Julia Child always preferred copper bowls, but I was always skeptical that they were better than glass. But a few years ago, again in a classroom demonstration, we actually tried this experiment. And indeed, the copper bowls work better. It seems that, that copper ions released from the metal form complexes with conalbumin, one of the main proteins in egg whites, and basically makes the protein film around air bubbles more stable. The foam then becomes strong enough to withstand the assault of heavy sugar and flour particles being dropped in. As for invulnerability, I don't think a copper bowl on the head has that effect. But... I think if I said it takes away pain, many who would try this regimen would agree. After all, don't they think that copper bracelets take away pain? Like for the man from La Mancha, imagination can rule over reality. Uh, 
I actually remember seeing a man of La, La Mancha. I saw it on, on Broadway, but I also saw it in Montreal. Uh, there was a production of it at <clears throat> Place des Arts in, in the uh, 1960s, if I remember correctly. And uh, the music of Man of La Mancha, of course, is, is, is great. The, the uh, most famous song there is The Impossible Dream. And um, uh, it, uh, I think, is, is uh, to me, one of the musicals that does translate reasonably well to the screen. The movie of Ma Man of La Mancha was pretty good. There's always an, an issue with uh, you know, musicals uh, on the screen because while it seems perfectly normal to see someone uh, burst into song on the stage, it doesn't seem quite so normal when the scenery becomes real. Um, so not every musical translates well to the screen. Some do very well. I mean, I, I, I must say that I, I think the new version of West Side Story by, by, San, by um, uh, uh, Bernstein, of course, was the composer, and Sondheim was the uh, lyr lyricist, and Steven Spielberg produced the most recent version. I think it was great. The, the dancing was was uh, excellent and uh, the scenery was was perfect you know the New York uh, scenery so this one really did uh, translate very well to uh, to the screen uh, I don't really like to make comparisons between the new version and the old version because the the original movie version was also uh, excellent although I'll, I'll say that in the uh, 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 Spielberg uh, version, the Officer Krupke scene was uh, probably better than in the original. So <coughs> that's um, my view on uh, movie uh, musicals. All right. Uh, one last little story for here, you here today. And it's about Swiss engineer George de Mestral, who one day became annoyed when Cocklebur stuck to his pants as he walked through a field of burdock plants. He began to wonder what made the burr stick so tenaciously. The Mestral got out the old magnifying glass and discovered that the burrs were covered with numerous hooks that had burrowed into the fabric. If he could reproduce this effect, he thought, he might be on to a novel fastening system. It took 10 years, but finally, Using nylon, he created, well, I'm sure you know what he created, Velcro. The substance found numerous uses. Miles of it are used on the space station to prevent equipment from floating around. And uh, we have so many household uses for Velcro. I mean, what a remarkable invention uh, it was. And the interesting part of the story is that it came from an accident of discovery. It came from Swiss engineer de Mestral just noticing that these cockleburs stuck to his pants. Now, most people, of course, would have been just annoyed by that and wondered about, you know, how do you get rid of these? But uh, he recognized that he had made a discovery. And as Louis Pasteur, of course, famously said, chance favors the prepared mind. Okay, well, you've learned something here today about quicklime and frying eggs and the golden helmet of Mambrino and uh, George de Mestral and uh, Velcro, something about WD-40. Hopefully you're better educated now than you were an hour ago. We're smack out of time. 
but we'll be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right. <laughs>